you know, this research may actually, for the first time in a really long time, actually make a difference in our lives as type 1 and type 2 diabetics. It is really hard to live with, but I know that staying positive makes a huge difference. And I am really excited about my guest tonight. You guys are not going to believe the amazing thing that she is training dogs to do for diabetics. This could change everything for a lot of us. Welcome to the Thriving Diabetics Podcast with your host, Dr. Matthew Herdert. Hello, friends. It is Dr. Matthew Herdert here again, creator of the Freedom from Diabetes programs intended for people um, new to living with diabetes and those of you more like me, long timers who are looking to get back on track and up their game to improve their control and get free of this thing we call diabetes. Type 1, type 2, whatever you got, let's get free. And a good time of year to talk about upping the game, given that we're moving into the holiday season and then the New Year's resolution season and then the long drag until summer. We're going to talk a little bit more about that, but uh, first, a couple things that caught my attention in the news in the last few weeks here. The first for those of you with type 1 or watching uh, news related to type 1 diabetes. Used to be called juvenile, also called IDDM, insulin dependent. Um, yet another new treatment. There's been a lot of stuff in the last year that's been hitting the press. Well, I guess coming to com- completion or coming to new levels of success in research for type 1 after decades of relative dry spells. We've got two or three really promising looking things uh, coming up here. I'm going to be talking about another one in a couple weeks, uh, bionic pancreas developed by an engineer whose son is type 1. Um, but uh, this week caught my attention. I think this actually came out a couple weeks ago, but I've not been tracking the news as closely with you guys in the last couple weeks. There are some um, researchers at MedStar Diabetes Institute who have been experimenting with extracting patients' um, polyclonal regulatory T cells, which are part of your immune system, the ones that are primarily responsible for attacking the islet cells in type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune condition. They're, they're extracting the cells and altering them to try and get them to stop attacking the pancreas, and then they are reinserting those back into the host, the person that they're running the experiment, the, the person with whose cells they're running the experiment, um, to see if they're rejected or if there are any safety concerns there. So this is uh, fairly new in the process. It's hard to say whether it's, um, you know, there haven't been any negative uh, consequences yet of altering the cells, at least so far as obvious. Um, but um, another interesting and new tact that's being taken here. I, I'm I'm more uh, in favor of do- what Dr. Accordi is working on and the bionic pancreas approach. I feel like so many times when mankind has felt like we understand physiology and the body better than nature or God, if that's your perspective on that, whatever that is, either way, <laughs> right? There's either a um, uh, immensely intelligent being that knows way more about stuff than we do, or a really beautiful process of 
evolution over millions of years that really refined a lot of processes, it's unlikely that we're going to do better than either one of those or both of those put together, depending on your perspective. So I always get a little nervous when we're in there tinkering around with things like that. But I will keep my eye on this one and report back to you guys. The only other thing that caught up uh, caught my attention this week was a, um, I'll say probably a controversial blog post on Reason.com on their blog and I'm, I'm, I'm not one to stray away from controversy, as those of you who have been listening for a while know. And I think that it's important, uh, contrary to the generation that are now kind of coming into um, high school and college age who seem to be very concerned about never hurting anybody's feelings, I think it's important that we take responsibility for our own feelings and, you know, um, taking responsibility for our part and being offended at what other people say, because I think that if you if you go too far in the other direction, then we lose the benefit of conversation and debate and dialogue and the kinds of things that got us free speech in the first place. So anyway, um, I'm no stranger to controversy, but this one did torque me a little bit. It's on Reason.com on their blog, and the title is U.S. Government Spends Billions on Diabetes Research, But Scientists Already Know the Cure. Okay, so that, of course, piqued my curiosity. So went on to read, and basically the, the, the brunt of the article, and I'm not saying it's not an intelligent blog post, but um, the, the gist of it basically is, you know, people with type 2 are fat, and so why are we doing research on spending all this money on research on diabetes instead of just making people not be fat? So, um, you know, you got, you got to create an account to comment on this thing. Some of you with type 1 may not know, and some of you with type 2 may not know that while that is, while being overweight and sedentary and eating a poor uh, sugar and carb intensive diet is the primary driver for type 2 diabetes, there are even thin people who get diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. There is definitely a genetic environmental component there above and beyond your responsible or irresponsible health choices. So I felt like this was a little unfair, even even though what this woman is putting out there maybe for the brunt of diabetics is true. I think that there are other things that could be criticized about where and how we spend our research dollars. Um, probably better things to point a finger at than this. So if that torques you as much as it torqued me, head on over to the Hit and Run blog on Reason.com and um, have a little conversation there with Ms. Brown about her article. So that's about it, at least in this last week in the news uh, as far as diabetes goes. I did want to talk a little bit about um, New Year's resolutions because we're coming up to that time of year. I started talking to you guys about this eh, probably a month ago. I guess a little bit longer ago than that. It was sort of the end of September, and as the weather starts to change around here, which I know it does in September worldwide, although the Southern Hemisphere, you're moving into spring. Up here in the Northern Hemisphere, we're moving into fall and winter. That change in the year always starts to get me thinking about the things coming up. Oh, fun, we get to do our family Halloween costume again, and uh, the beautiful leaves are coming, and oh, Christmas, I love putting up the lights and all the decorations, and um, then that kind of long slog through 
January, February, March, where here everything is just dead. Um, you know, I'm very grateful when we have snow here because at least it's pretty and clean and bright for a few days. But um, part of my thinking about that season is always about how the cultural behaviors change this time of year. So what I was sharing with you guys near the end of September, um, maybe it wasn't here on uh, on on the podcast. It might have been on my vlog. I don't remember. Maybe both places. But I tend to recommit to doing P90X uh, towards the end of September so that that's carrying me. Really, sometimes I do at the beginning of September because one of the, what, what we know from research is one of the most successful ways to make a new habit stick is to start the new habit when other major life changes are in place. And in my family, the beginning of the school year is a pretty major change. We go from having two highly energetic, independent, strong-willed kids at home fighting with each other all the time to having one younger, strong-willed, independent creature who screams at us all the time and tries to assert his independence, just one at home, which is far more peaceful, believe it or not, despite the way I described that. But that's kind of a big change at the time of year for us, so I sometimes make that change in the beginning of September. This year, I made it closer to the end of September because for a multitude of reasons, which aren't really important, but it's going to carry me you know, through into the new year. And so there are a couple different reasons I do this. One is because, you know, we've got this cultural change of everybody kind of slowing down at work and productivity dropping off, at least most of the businesses and companies I've worked for in my adult life. You know, that's been the case. Even even in retail, I mean, retail can be busier, but um, if you're not on the floor as a salesperson or a checker, even in the back office, seems like people, you know, everybody kind of just shuts dead, their brains shut down a little bit, everybody kind of slides into holiday mode just a bit. <clears throat> and I don't mean to be cavalier about retail. I'm sure there are people listening who work their butts off all year round. It's not a personal criticism. It's just my my personal experience and an observation that things tend to slow down a little bit this time of year, at least in the United States. And we've got all these holiday parties and everybody's going to the holiday parties and, you know, there's the temptation of the food which obviously for a lot of us often turns into giving in to the food. And then you've got the start of the new year, the start of all things new, and the inevitable New Year's resolution. As an aside here, as if I haven't already had three or four tangents uh, so far, but as an aside here, with regards to, I, I got an a list, a email from a listener not recently, maybe in the spring, because I'd mentioned a product on the podcast. And it's important for me to let you guys know that I am, I have never uh, been compensated in any way, shape, or form financially, um, an exchange of product placement by anybody that I've ever had on the show, any of my guests, or any product that I've ever talked about. I talk about these products because I believe in them and they work well for me, which doesn't mean they'll work well for you. And it's just in the course of sharing about my life or um, sometimes I do recommend a product. I think maybe last week I was talking about um, a book called Molecules of Emotion. I have made a conscious choice not to involve advertising in this podcast at all. And the reason is, is because I want it to be straightforward and of service and on the up and up. And if I'm taking, you know, if I have ads placed by Novo Nordisk and all of a sudden I stumble across something in the news about how Novo Nordisk has done something 
underhanded or this product doesn't work, I don't want to be restricted in my ability to bring you guys that information. So not that that's a something that I would expect to happen often and no effect in Overnordis. They're just the first company that jumped to mind. Um, but I don't want to be constrained by advertisers because not to get too political here, but my, my opinion is that our mainstream media in the United States is, is to a large degree owned by advertising and certain kinds of advertising. And I think that that's a concern for our country and for us, our ability to get accurate news. Um, you know, 1950s, 1960s, everybody was reading the same newspaper for their news every day. So even if you and I didn't read the same story, we saw the same headlines. So we had the same sense about what was going on in the world. Whereas now, if you go to uh, AOL or Yahoo or Huffington Post or MSN or wherever it is, they track the stories that you click on most often, and they put more of those kinds of stories in front of you to generate ad revenue. So if I go to the Huffington Post and you go to the Huffington Post, we are probably not seeing the same homepage on Huffington Post where, you know, some people are getting all Syria and some people are getting all Kardashians. So I love P90X. It works incredibly well for me. I believe I believe in it. Uh, I love it. Uh, it fits my personality well because it's a different workout every night, so I don't get bored as quickly. Um, I do not get paid by Tony Horton or P90X or any, anything having to do with that. I don't know the guy. You know, he's not he's not putting out ads for my podcast, at least so far as I know, unless he's a listener and I don't know about it. So. And I just felt it, I felt I should mention that because I never really talked about that on the podcast before. So I should probably bring that up for, for time to time that this is from my heart to your heart in my loving support, wanting to support you in being your best, most powerful, most engaged, healthiest self in the world, as free as is possible mentally, emotionally, physically from diabetes. Doesn't have anything to do with money here. So back to the New Year's resolution thing. <laughs> So the thing about New Year's resolutions is I think we all know, in fact, in recent years, it's been interesting. I've noticed how many of my patients around this time of year when I inquire about resolutions are like, yeah, no, I don't do, you know, everybody always gives up on them anyway, right? You do them for a month and they then they just fall apart. They dissolve like you lose steam. So maybe it's because I'm talking to people more about it uh, in a conscious way listening for certain kinds of responses. But I feel like in recent years, more and more people have been stating this opinion that they they don't deal with resolutions because they don't work, because they fail, because they fall apart. Now, that doesn't mean that every resolution falls apart for every person all the time. You know, some people do very well with New Year's resolutions. Most of us don't, which is why I mean, you know, I'm 45. If I've been doing resolutions my entire adult life, the 25 most important things in in my life would be managed and dealt with and I wouldn't be (laughs) setting resolutions anymore, right? All that stuff would be taken care of. But at the same time, setting goals for yourself is essential to succeeding with any undertaking. And if it's something that's even on your radar as something that needs to be done or might need a resolution or that you might need to set goals around, then it is something that you need to set goals around. If it weren't a challenge on some level for you to accomplish that or create that or manifest that or you know, release that, whatever, you know, that habit or that thing is in your life that you think you might want to set up 
a goal or a resolution around, you would have just accomplished it already, right? It's like, oh, I got to put gas in the car. I don't need to make a goal out of that. I just go put the gas in the car because it's not a, it's not a challenge. So I don't need to set up a goal or a resolution around that. So we all have things like this on our radar, whether it's eating better, releasing weight, talking to our parents more often, um, you know, um, getting a new job, finding a partner, a spouse. I mean, there for most of us, there's something in our life that drives us to have a richer experience of ourselves and of life around us. And resolutions are a very common way, at least in the United States, that people tie into that and, and try and make that happen. Again, the problem with resolutions has to do with something about human consciousness that we don't talk about a whole lot. I mean, there's certainly some conversation around it, but there's not an ongoing discussion about it. And that is that there are many different aspects to our consciousness that are operating below our conscious level of awareness. And those things play into our goal setting and our attempts to achieve those goals just as much as the conscious ones do. So let me give you an easy example. If there's a part of you, if you have ever said anything to yourself before, like, "Ah, I don't even know why I try because it it never happens. It never works out for me. Especially if you've said that to yourself more than once or twice, or if that's a familiar voice to you, there is some part of your consciousness that believes that and has bought into that. Now, that is not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself, because every part of our consciousness is seeking to help us or protect us in some way. So that part, that part says, oh, I don't even know why we try because we never do it anyway. That part is trying to cushion your ego from failure. It's trying to pre- it's trying to help prevent you from being overwhelmed and crushed by disappointment. And I've been coaching people for 20 years, and I, I tell you, people seem to be, myself included, we as people, seem to be way, 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 way more fearful of mental and emotional destruction or, you know, evisceration or death than we are of physical hurt, damage, evisceration, destruction, death. I think a very easy thing to point out that supports that is that the, the number one fear in almost every study on people's top fears is the fear of public speaking. People rate that as a greater fear than the fear of death. Fear of public speaking greater than the fear of death. So again, it's, you know, it's this, this, this idea of, of shaming, of not being accepted, of failing. I mean, it's all mental and emotional stuff that is, tends to be most fearful for us. So even those kinds of voices that seem to be undermining us are really working tr- in a way that they're, they think that they're trying to help us, to help protect us or cushion a blow or protect, protect us from disappointment. So they're not bad in and of themselves. The way in which they become bad is if you're unaware of those parts of your consciousness. If you're just letting that voice happen in the back of your head and not paying attention to it and dealing with it and acknowledging it and say, you know what, I hear you and I hear that that's been, you know, my experience up until now that I've often not been able to follow through on promises I made myself, goals I set, you know, whatever that is. 
And I also hear that you're saying that because you want to try and help protect my feelings so I don't get disappointed. But that that is not what's going to happen this time. You know, to bring that that less conscious part of your consciousness, the one that's kind of operating in a way to undermine you, bring that into the conscious realm and interacting with it and saying, yeah, I hear you. I get that that has been true in the past. That's not happening this time. So it's important to be, you know, conscious uh, as we can be of all those levels. Even that being said, going into a resolution, not only is there a part of our head that can undermine us in circumstances like that where we've set a goal for ourselves, but the whole cultural dialogue, the whole discourse around New Year's resolutions is that they flop after a time. They have a built-in connotation of failure or surrender. I mean, they're almost a joke in certain circles. So, at the same time that I don't encourage people that I'm I'm working with actively in you know my coaching programs or you know people that I'm coaching individually or patients in my office or friends I'm talking to about this I never discourage people from goal setting I encourage people to do it in a way that supports them in a way that's beneficial in a way where the structure is is set up to benefit or to help them now, I'm going to go on a little, I don't consider it a tangent, it may seem like a tangent or an odd direction to take this, but um, there is something to be said for setting goals in the new year at the same time that everybody else is doing resolutions, but to describe it in a way that doesn't use that terminology or the language that has that built-in failure idea attached to it. And the reason I think that it's a good idea or a, a wise idea to set goals around the start of the new year is because so many other people are doing it that there is a uh, warehouse or a battery of positive creative change that's kind of floating around in the collective consciousness that you can draw on for support around that time. So here's here's the weird little tangent, and that that you guys may have already noticed the tangent there if you're not super woo-woo or haven't done a lot of reading in this kind of thing. There is a <clears throat> substantial amount of gold standard research that has been done really starting in the mid-late 1980s on prayer, specifically in medicine, where people have set up Again, gold standard studies, double-blinded studies, um, to test whether having a group of people praying for one person or a group of persons undergoing medical procedures seems to make a statistically significant positive effect on their outcomes. And every once in a while, you'll catch in the news a story about how another um, study on prayer in usually medicine has been done, and you know the the test didn't show that anything significant had happened there. I I am not sure why those studies get more airtime than the studies that show that prayer does have statistically significant outcomes, because the majority of these studies actually show that. Praying for people in healthcare situations has a marked and statistically significant effect 
on their healthcare outcomes. Sometimes it's the rate of infection, sometimes it's the rate of recovery, how soon they're discharged from the hospital, how few people die versus how many people die from the procedure. And this this study, this process of these studies has been really refined over the ages. The first one, at least so far as I'm aware, the very first one was run by a Catholic cardiologist in San Francisco. He was the head of a cardiology department there. And that study produced statistically significant outcomes in all four of those quadrants, how people, how few people got infection, how few people died after the procedure, how soon people were released from the hospital, uh, and how quickly they recovered. Over those early years that this research was being done, there were many criticisms that came forward about about the research itself, saying, for example, and I don't I don't remember because it's been enough years now since I've really sat down and read a lot about this in detail that I, I can't say 100%, but I believe that it was there were some criticisms levied against that first study saying, yeah, this guy is just trying to shill for Catholicism. So the people involved in that study came back and repeated the study, but this time instead of only having Catholics pray for the group of patients, they had Carmelite nuns, they had um, Muslim imams, they had uh, Buddhist nuns, they had people from a wide variety of different faiths involved in the prayer process by, by whatever form, format they did prayer in their particular religion, thereby taking the that argument out of the equation. So over, over the period of, you know, 10 or 15 years, most of the major objections to these studies were countered in some way by redesigning the nature of the studies. So if you're at all interested in this, a great book to read on the topic um, is called uh, Reinventing Medicine. Sorry, it took me a second to, to get it there. Um, it is, it's a fantastic book. It's a very accessibly written book. There's not a lot of medical ease in it. Um, and it's been in a, a hugely impactful book on me and how I practice as a physician with my clients. But <clears throat> if you haven't already tuned out because I'm talking about prayer and medicine, and hopefully you haven't, th- this is where it gets interesting. The thing about well, I guess it's already interesting. This is where, to me, it gets more interesting. The thing about research on prayer is that there is no way to design a study that can prove that something spiritual is taking place. There's no way to control for, to design the study in a way to prove that there is a spiritual action taking place or that you know there is a god or some higher power of some sort. There's just no way to do that in research. So if you step back from that and say, okay, well, what can we say here? Like what is what is the sort of the most upper level, the most top level assumption or um, conclusion that we can make from this? <clears throat> it seems to be that at very least the process of thinking beneficial thoughts about other people seems to impact their health. Now, this this is a surprise, but it's also not a surprise. When doctors first discovered the placebo effect, up until that time, mankind had really related to the body as a machine and thought that the mind and the body were completely separate. You know, the, the body was sort of the sum of its parts and nothing more than that. So when they first 
discovered the placebo effect, um, which was the discovery, for those of you who don't know placebo, that your thoughts can affect your health positively and negatively. And that was discovered when they were testing medications and they would give one group the medication and give another group sugar pills or water pills until then they were also getting the medication. The group that was getting the sugar or the water pills uh, often got as good results or outcomes as the group that was getting the medication, sometimes even better outcomes than the group that was getting the medication. That was a a shock to the researchers. They didn't even um, entertain the idea that that was possible. They really wanted to see how much better the medication did than no medication. Um, And so that that was the first time we had insight into the fact that our thoughts can literally affect the course of our health, for better or for worse. The, these uh, studies on prayer in medicine in the 1980s were the first time that we had any evidence that my thoughts can affect your health, whether or not I know you. There do seem to be certain things um, from the studies that seem to help, like having a picture of the person that you're praying for to focus on or to look at during the prayer. But again, these were double-blinded studies, so the people praying had no idea the names, the location. Uh, Maybe they had a general location. trying to remember back again probably 10 years to the last time I was reading up on this stuff. The point being, our best evidence, our best assumption from this is that there is some sort of level at which we are all connected And I tend to think of this as a collective unconscious or a collective consciousness. And it actually explains many phenomena observed in humankind. So stepping back to the New Year's resolution idea, if you can swallow all that, I know it's kind of, if it's an idea you've not heard before, it can be kind of a big idea to swallow. But stepping back to the New Year's resolution idea... Around the start of the new year, at least in many Western countries, there's this sense of newness and excitement for the year ahead, of possibility, of potential, the opportunity to start over. Many people are setting resolutions and goals and making plans for the year. So if there is indeed this collective consciousness, which it does seem research has indicated pretty strongly there is, that means that there is this huge psychic battery of energy and enthusiasm and inspiration and creativity that you can tap into and draw from. And I don't think it's anything you need to, I mean, you don't need to like um, rub your tummy and, and pat your head and hop around in a circle on your left foot three times to tap into that. You just acknowledge that it's there and make a choice to draw from that, to tap into that and to take energy and inspiration and creativity from it. As long as you're also equally conscious about not tapping into the fall off that happens a few months later. So I'm not very good with analogies, but it's kind of like, you know, hooking a hooking a free ride on the Titanic, but being smart enough to um, part ways and head off in a um, in a dinghy long before you get to the iceberg. (laughs) Again, I'm not very good with analogies, but (laughs) and hopefully there aren't a whole lot of. uh, third generation Titanic survivors listening who thought that was insensitive, but you get the point. It's like you want to hitch a ride on the energy and enthusiasm at the beginning of the year. You want to think of it as a New Year's inspiration or a New Year's commitment or a goal. Um, Find some languaging for it other than resolution so you don't unconsciously suck yourself into that, that tip over the edge of the waterfall that comes in February or March.
but it is a great time, in my experience, to really start new things and get new balls rolling. So one simple thing I do for myself that you guys can choose to do or not to do is I have a pie chart that hangs on the wall uh, right behind my computer, so I look at it every day. And for me, it's divided into six categories, or at least in recent years, it's been divided into six categories. One is physical health. One is mental health. One is emotional health. Well, it's really mental and emotional together. One is spiritual health. One is my practice. One are my relationships. And one is thriving diabetics. And so in each one of those pie charts, I have certain goals that I've set for myself during the year. So for instance, this year, my physical um, health goal was to release another few pounds and get myself down to 170 pounds, which I've almost done and should hit by the end of the year. Another goal was to fully explore uh, CGMs and decide whether I wanted to start using one, which I did. I did decide, I did decide, I explored and I decided not to. And the other one was I wanted to up my ante from an average of exercising four times a week to an average of exercising five times a week. And I also did that. So I pick three goals in each one of those categories and I set that in place during the first couple weeks of the new year and I give it time. I don't just sit down and scribble some stuff out. I really think about, okay, what did I do last year? What worked for me? What didn't work for me? What did I was I not able to accomplish last year? What did I set down as a goal that I failed on and why? Like did I was my heart really not in that or did I set the goal like, you know, to drop from 175 to 170? Uh, or, you know, did I set it from to drop from 175 to 130 pounds? Like, was it just a ridiculous goal? And I just pick three simple goals. It doesn't mean I can't add others or accomplish other things during the year. But these are just things that are really heartfelt and important to me in the most important areas of my life to continue to master my life, to expand, to enrich myself, to grow, you know, relationships, um, it was to do a consciously loving action for each of the three, my three immediate family members daily to spend 30 minutes of time a week individually with, with, with both my kids and with my wife, <clears throat> with my kids individually, and then to do at least monthly to do one service project for each of them. You know, so in each three of those categories, um, there were goals set there. And then the other thing that's important is to be okay if you don't accomplish these goals. The most important thing you can do in terms of, okay, I'll say the two most important things you can do in in terms of setting the goals and achieving them. Number one is it has to be heartfelt. You have to have juice in it. It can't be a, I should do that. If it's a should, you're not going to get very far with it. Unless it's a should that's really undermined by a tremendous amount of caring and enthusiasm and excitement enough to help, you know, push that into a a get-to category. That's the way I talk to my clients about it. You want it to be a get-to, not a have-to, like I get to do that. An easy example there, which I may have shared uh, before, but I don't think I've shared recently. When I used to live in LA, I had, you know, a half-hour drive uh, to and from work at least every day. It was a great time for me to listen to to NPR, to um, talk to friends I hadn't talked to in a long time on the phone, to listen to the new Radiohead album, whatever it was, it was good decompression time. Now I just walk a couple blocks home from my practice, which I'm not about to complain about. I mean, that's beautiful and awesome that I get to do that. However, I've lost that 
chunk of time for doing that kind of stuff, listening to, you know, uh, albums from new bands that a friend has turned me on to, or new albums from a band that I've loved for a long time, or to listen to the news from around the world to find out what's going on. I can't really, can't really uh, do the phone calling thing the way that I do this. So I, I lost that time. So in trying to find a way to encourage myself to do some stretching exercises every day and to work out every day, that is the time where I now get to do those things. So instead of stretching being obligatory or exercising being obligatory, it's not a have to anymore. It's a get to because that's when I get to listen to the new music or to NPR or whatever that is. So I found a way to, I guess you could say I tricked myself into looking forward to that time instead of going, oh God, I guess I have to do that. So the first thing again is to make sure that it's, it's something that's heartfelt for you or inspired. The second most important thing in that goal setting is to not overcommit. Like I said, don't say, okay, I'm 175 pounds. I want to be at 130 12 months from now. Pretty unlikely that you're going to be able to make that goal. It's far better to pick a far smaller goal. Like let's say you want to go from 175 to 165. Set your goal for 170. Worst case scenario is you'll achieve 170 in a couple months and you'll have to reset your goal, which is which is a great worst case scenario, right? Versus setting it too high and getting frustrated because you don't get there as quick and burning out and getting impatient and all that kind of stuff. So um, as we come towards this time of year, you know, let's do this as a community together. Let's all let's all make a commitment to ourselves that in the arena of health, specifically in the arena of diabetes management, we're going to set one reasonable, doable goal for ourselves for the next year. And you can do it in a shorter time frame than you want. You can do it, you know, between January 1st and March 31st if you want. Just don't overcommit in terms of the size of the goal. But pick something that's heartfelt for you. Do research on continuous glucose monitoring devices and deciding whether it's a good fit for you. And if it is a good fit for you, find out if your insurance will cover it. And if they won't, look into other funding options because there are groups online that you can find online. There are other organizations out there that can help you get funding for that sort of thing. Um, Make a decision to increase your exercise by one day a week or to undertake a new kind of exercise one day a week that you've been interested in and know will dramatically benefit your life, like yoga, for example, that you just keep putting off getting involved in or researching. So pick something that's heartfelt. Pick something that you know will make a difference for you in your glucose levels, in your A1C, in your side effects, your complications, your overall quality of life, you know, to reduce the chances that your family is going to have to watch you rot away one system at a time that will give you a longer life and better quality of life while you're here, that will help you thrive. And let's all start moving towards that together. You know, use the buddy system. Find another friend who's doing the same thing and commit to checking in on each other. Hold each other accountable. You know, if you have to use guilt and shame as a tool to help get yourself there, then, you know, man, until until you get to the point where you can just do it because you're on fire for it, then use the guilt and shame for now. Use use that buddy system. And if you need if you need more support, shoot me an email. Send me an email and we could be in communication about it. I'll support you through it and hold you to it. 
And just think about this. You've got a couple weeks before that New Year's battery starts. So let's see. What is today? I'm going to click on my clicky thing here. It's the 6th. So technically, you've got, what, 25 days. So that's a pretty good chunk of time to throw some ideas around and think about you know things that you've thought about in recent years that you might be really excited about, like learning to snowboard or learning to surf or... Um, you know, taking a yoga class or something. Put it on your Christmas list if you have financial challenges with affording that. Don't be afraid to ask for help. The worst that's going to happen is somebody will say no. But start to get yourself pumped up and start to look towards 2016 and making it the healthiest year you have ever had in your life. Because those of you who have been listening to this long enough or you know, read my ebooks or watch the vlog who know my story, you guys know that I only had a couple healthy years before I became diabetic. And then I had a whole lot of unhealthy years completely by my own doing. And I made a decision to turn things around. And I am probably, well, I mean, I don't know. I was diagnosed at four. I was probably healthier at three than I am now, all things considered. But I'm really the healthiest I've ever been in my life now. And I am not I'm not the only one I know who has done that. I've seen hundreds of people go through diabetes educated programs, education programs, coaching programs who have gone in with major resistance, major frustration, major denial, major anger and resentment and push their way through that stuff and start to make life affirming changes and have come out the other side with an A1C one or two points lower than they went in having completely changed their diet, loving exercise, having released 15 pounds, brought their blood pressure and their cholesterol down. It can be done. I've seen enough people do it. Even people who walked into those programs and I was like, yep, this person this person doesn't have the drive, the interest. They're just here because their boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife wants them to be here. This is never going to happen. And they proved me wrong and they turned it around. I've seen too many people do that to believe for a nanosecond that you can't do it too. So start setting the stage. We've got a great opportunity and resource coming up in about a month here. So start thinking about what kinds of steps you want to take forward. And then we're going to do that together. Because, you know, diabetes is too lousy a thing especially when you think about the fact that it doesn't have to control the quality of our life to let it stop you from thriving. And if I have anything to do with it, you're not going to make that choice. You're going to go out there and you're going to thrive. All right, everybody. Thanks again for tuning in. Uh, Sorry, this one's up a day late. I actually forgot it was Saturday yesterday. Caught up in uh, Christmas decorations, getting a Christmas tree, all that kind of fun stuff. So hope you guys have a great time preparing for the holidays, doing holiday parties and all that. If you're throwing a holiday party, don't forget I put up a sizable board on Pinterest with carb-free recipes to support you and your friends in thriving. It's at Pinterest slash thriving diabetics. No eyes in the word thriving. Sorry, it's all the space they gave me. And think, who do you know with diabetes who needs support? Please make sure you share the podcast with them too. We'll talk to you again in a few days here. In the meantime, go out there, suck the juice out of life, the things you love, your relationships, your play. Go out there, live out loud, and be well.